What's up, good people in podcast land? Welcome to Convene. I'm your host, Chris Penrose. Convene is a conversation series with a narrative arc. Since 2017, we have brought the creative community in Toronto together to dive into topics ranging from creative direction and visual storytelling to contracts, pricing your work, and space to create. This podcast is dedicated to sharing the audio from those conversations. Just a heads up, when people get passionate about sharing knowledge, sometimes they throw some explicit language in there. So there's some of that in this episode. Enjoy. Convene hip-hop art and thriving in the world brought to the forefront the role of this global culture in these turbulent times that we're living in. The question of whether there's a moment you can think of where hip-hop opened your mind and shifted how you look at the world was at the forefront of this. We took the time to explore the power and impact of all forms of hip-hop-inspired art at connecting us and opening up new perspectives. This conversation featured prolific Toronto MC Eternia, the founder of Drop and Dimes DJ Mel Boogie, visual artist and illustrator Toon Crew, and Chetto, the host and founder of The Come Up Show. This conversation took place in partnership with Offsite Concept Space. I'd love to hear what this moment was for you. So um, for everyone in the panel, and maybe we'll start with Mel and then moving down, describe a moment. <laughs> She's like, I, I sat, oh, she sat, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the teacher movements, is back of the class gets the question. <laughs> um, describe a moment within the past year where a piece of hip hop or hip hop art got you seeing or thinking about the world around you differently? Um, I recently did a video shoot for um, a young MC by the name of Phoenix Pagliacci, um, who's amazing. But um, the shoot was at a place called Graffiti Alley, somewhere in this area. I had never heard of it before. But um, they have a portrait there of two people who are very, very important to me. One is King Rain, who passed away last year. And the other is Son of Soul, who passed away two years ago. So it was basically two hits to the industry back to back. And both of these young men were just positive people. Um, an amazing artist. Son of Soul was a DJ. Some of you may know him. Some of you may not have had the pleasure of meeting him. Um, but well-respected DJ um, across the city and beyond. And King Rain was uh, an MC, both as a solo artist and as part of Brass Monk. Very influential, very positive. And I didn't even know those portraits existed. And just to see them there was like, wow. These guys had so much influence that somebody took the time to pay homage to them in this manner. Not only that, but whoever's going to pass through that alley from now on is going to see those two young black men who were taken um, by natural causes far too early. But that just shows how positive an impact they had on people in our community. So that's how, yeah, hip-hop art has influenced me within the past year. Yeah, and it's, it's the emotion. I know you had said something around that of like thinking about legacy, right? Where these are two artists who, not just in the music that they played or made, but also, you know, how they put people on, how they 
you know, operated with integrity and, and just amazing character and just made a lot of love, like in how, you know, so it's, it wasn't just like trying to climb to the top in the music, but it was like, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Um, Toon Crew. Yeah, man. What's up? Um, I want to apologize to anyone who saw my profile pic and thought an animated figure was going to walk in here today. <laughs> but <laughs> I am a human. Um, I know, I know, I know. Some people um, are disappointed right now. I know, I know. <laughs> I was thinking of like dressing up in like a, a suit and stuff, like cartoon suit, but um, um, I like uh, hip hop. Like I'm gonna speak from like I guess a listener's perspective, like. Um, and sort of everybody knows an artist named Charles Bradley. He was a funk and soul artist. Um, I mean, it, it touches on hip hop a bit because it's the foundation of hip hop, pretty much. And um, his story and life just touched my 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 life in a way where, um, you know, he if everybody knows the story, he was a guy who lived. He was poor. He was destitute all his life. And it wasn't until late, later on in his, in his senior years of his life that he started to live out his true dreams of art and singing. And um, it kind of parallels kind of like what, how I feel and uh, what I was going through as uh, someone who um, wants to live out their passions and their art, um, but, uh, you know, through life, put it on hold. And through seeing Char Charles Bradley's story and him having the courage to still do that, um, it's kind of inspired me to uh, to live out my life in that way, and um, you know it was sad. He only he only got five good years out of, of of sort of his success, but I'm sure those were the five best years of his life, and uh, it's definitely inspired me in that way. And I know it's not directly correlated to hip hop, but his it, it just really struck me. I'm man. sure somebody sampled him. Probably, <laughs> probably, and they better have paid the right people to sample that. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think that that question is something that, like, no matter now you're moving into, no matter generation, no matter what your sector practice skill is, that element of, like, there's the practicality of life, there's the real barriers of life, and then there's these passions you have and the self-doubt as well. Like, can I really make it happen and make a living from it? So it's definitely an inspiring story. Um, if you could pass the mic to Turnia. Turnia, to the your left, moment to the of the left. year. <laughs> Um, that was a really tough question for me, but the first thing that came to mind, which I thought, oh, this is too easy because it's so obvious, but um, I work with, I, I refer to her as my sister, but at one point I was her mentor and then we became friends and then now we're like family, but she has a song that just dropped called What Was She Wearing? And it's basically about rape and the justice system and how it fails um, people that experience sexual violence based on their gender. And the reason why I said, oh, that sounds obvious is, well, I've, I've written songs about that myself from a different angle and, and put them out, more than one. Um, but the reason why it really kind of changed my view a bit, as opposed to you like thinking, oh, okay, that's kind of the world that I live in, is um, recently, this year, I've, I've gone to court with more than one of my friends um, um, to support them in a sexual assault trial, different situations. And I just know that my heart... Like, I just knew that they were going to get off, like the guys, and I was just kind of numb about it. Like, it's not that I think it's okay, but you know when you just know something's going to happen, you're just like, 
And so when Jazz came out, um, Nari, Jazz is what I call her, when Nari came out with this song and I was around for her writing it, for her recording it, I was in the video shoot and then we just did the screening on Saturday, um, just watching it being just as visceral and real to her every time, like it didn't matter how many times she had, she had like she wrote it, she performed it, she, w- she would cry. And um, it just made me realize how numb I had become because, you know, as a woman that's experienced, you know, sexual violence and every woman I know has experienced sexual violence, um, it's easy, yeah, it's just easy to just say, okay, well, this is just what it is. Um, And she basically went on there, and if you listen to the song, she definitely approaches it from a different... When I write, I always just write from my personal experience. Like, I'm just like, okay, this is what I went through, and and I try not to do too many value. Like, you know, I just, it's like a diary. But when she wrote, she really was like, it was a scathing critique of the justice system. Um, And it was just a scathing critique of systemic oppression and and systemic violence against women. So I think it really called me to check myself when it comes to my numbness and to ask myself why I'm numb. Do you you feel that um, your sense is coming back a bit more? Yeah, the more I get around people that are really angry about something that they should, <laughs> that they should be really angry about. Yes. No, but it, it, it's and an I wonder adjust- if it's my age. Like, I wonder if it's, okay, in my 20s I was mad and now I'm just not in my 20s anymore. Like, I wonder that. Um, but yeah, yeah, it does, it, it's, it's sensitizing me again for sure. There's been some conversation and uh, there was a CBC panel on The Current recently where they were having an intergenerational conversation about Me Too and talking about the way that expectations around what happens in the workplace or what sexual assault is or what um, the consequences for men need to be yeah. was seen differently generation by generation and old, like just not it's not universal but typically younger generations were much more assertive about what can and can't happen versus older generations being like well it's kind of way it is and And if I could just jump in like I came up strictly around dudes in the 90s in hip-hop and what people are getting angry about now I experience on a daily basis and kind of normalized you know what I'm saying and that doesn't make it okay but I realized that like yeah for me it was normal yeah um yeah something that opened my eyes I think is kind of connected uh are you guys familiar with a singer called Jesse Reyes uh, she has a song called Figures that blew up, but um, she... million views. Yeah. Yeah. I heard Toronto. it on radio today. I didn't Killing know that. <laughs> this... <laughs> uh, she released uh, a song and music video called Gatekeepers uh, that came out early in 2017. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it's basically like a story that she's telling about what wi- what women in, uh, in music have been dealing with. And it's it's... It's kind of like it came out early 2017, and then you know now we have Me Too and everything happening. But basically, uh, the song's about her being pressured by an industry heavyweight to give it up if she wants to get on, mm-hmm. if she wants to get to the next level. Um, and even though I've you know I did a radio show for a while, and like you know local community and all that type of stuff, uh, in in. The music industry here, if you want to call it an industry, is not the same as it is in New York and L.A. or whatever, right? Like, uh, but that song, because it's a person that I knew about and I followed mm-hmm. when she told that story. And it's actually a, a documentary, a mini yeah, documentary. I mean, I, yeah, there's a short film as well, which you can see on YouTube. So there's the song, the video, but then a short film um, that 
really goes into the story and in Jesse Reyes's approach, which is very like straightforward, forceful, and just full of heart. I think the, the story mm. is told that way as well. I really recommend it. It's on YouTube if you want to see it. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, because, you know, music, urban music especially, has always been misogynistic part of it towards women, right? Uh, but that was a person that I knew about who is telling this story and uh, makes me even more aware and, like, want to protect, because uh, I am a music journalist, of other, f other women artists who are, in the game and if they're dealing with men that I think are maybe they shouldn't be dealing with uh, to like to look out really look out and to really you know uh, protect yeah. them it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, the other day I had noticed Jesse Reyes was like she posted that for 10 minutes she was going to reply to every comment on her feed and one of the questions was a young woman saying, I'm a young woman, I'm coming up with the music, what's your advice to me? And she said, literally, like, I would never, number one, if I'm meeting someone new, a man especially, I'll never go by myself. I used to go with my parents with additions. Now it's a friend or, well, more so now it's her manager, but she will not put herself in a situation and just saying, like, that's a strategy that um, she's built. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really intense that... Um, you know, and I remember I was working with some people who were, you know, in her management last year when that was coming out. I was, at first, I was, because it was before Me Too, so I was concerned that by her putting that song out that that's all every, anyone's going to ever interview her about, that's going to define her career. Um, so it took a lot of bravery for her to tell that story in that way and um, to call out the situation. You know, um, but just to, in terms of you now, like you're interviewing artists, you are constantly around people who, whether you're um, putting them on your platform or you're, you know, connecting through shows and stuff. How, how does that experience of really taking that song and being affected by that perspective affect how you do, you play your role now as a man in the industry? Yeah, uh, if we're at shows, you know, uh, like after a show, depending on what time it ends, right, uh, 2 a.m., 1 or 2 or 3 or, or after parties or whatever, I'm definitely, uh, you know, th there have been, like, women who are in, like, peers or journalists or whatever, if they need a ride somewhere or mm -hmm. making sure that they're good before I dip or I bounce mm -hmm. or all that type of stuff, just little small things like that even if I don't know them or know of them, because I, I know a lot of artists or uh, they may not know me, but I know of them, right? So just to be protective that way, just like what I would do for like my sister or something like that, right? Uh, yeah, that's, 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 that's that would be like something that I'm really, really, yeah, yeah. you know, being protective of. Yeah, I appreciate that story. Yeah, and the, and the connection to through these... Um, the two last stories of the year is, is profound. Like that, that when you look back at the last year, when you think of the moment that affected you the most, though two of those stories are really connected to how um, gender-based violence is affecting arts and affecting um, people in general, women in general. Um, to, to jump into individual questions, Eternia, um, I wanted to go back now, if not everyone knows, I mean, you've been recording and putting out music for 20 years, have worked with both in Canada, you know, a number of 
um, other legends aside, that sit beside you as well as people you know across the industry. But where did hip hop start to, with you? Like who are the artists, songs, moments? Like where did that really begin? Because everybody, I mean, not everybody, a lot of people dream of being rappers. You know, maybe you have moments where they think you're they talking might about yourself, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some people I, I used to freestyle. I ended up one time. I actually ended up in this situation where I was like just freestyling, and then this I mean, this guy took some, a line I said personally, oh. and then his whole crew's there, and then Adam Bomb comes in, and he's like, "No, he no, he was it was his friend that he's backing up." So I'm like. I'm not an MC. Why am I in a battle with Atom Bomb right now? Like, <laughs> this guy will destroy me. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and true story, it almost went physical. And my, my friend back there, Chinadu, he's on the football team at York. He just puffed out his chest. He's like, no, 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 you're not touching this guy. Otherwise, it would have been a different story. So, but yeah, there's other people in this room who wanted to rap. Come on. I'm not the only one. <laughs> I'm not the only one. Um, yeah, where did it start? Yeah, I always... It's so funny because I was telling Chris when we talked on the phone earlier last week, sometimes you don't think about your processes, like any kind of process, whether it be a creative process or um, your life path. Like you don't think about it until somebody asks. And then even when someone asks, sometimes you don't see the really obvious stuff. Um, so each time somebody asks me this question, the answer differs. <laughs> and it's all true. It's just I, I start to learn more and more things about myself because I don't really think about it. So um, what's the answer today? So the answer today, <laughs> well, I mean, it all started with my brother. I do think that dudes are often gatekeepers to hip-hop, or at least back in the day, uh, back in the 80s at least. Um, so my brother was bringing hip-hop home on cassette tape um, in the 80s, Run DMC, 2 Live Crew, NWA, the obvious stuff for a white kid in Canada, I always say. Um, <laughs> you know, like, we lived in... Okay? And, um, yeah, and so, so I started listening to hip-hop just because my older brother was. I was under the age of 10. It's yeah. probably like 7, 8. And I started rapping without knowing that that's weird. Yeah. I was just like mimicking what I listened to because that's what kids do. Yeah. Um, the only difference is I didn't stop. So what happened in the 90s, which was my era, was our era maybe. I just, you know, I owned it. My bad, you guys. Our era maybe. Some people's era. Um, was I started to really develop my taste and have my own taste for myself and my own cassettes and CDs. And um, one thing I realized this time that I have not mentioned before oh, nice. was magazines played a huge role in me discovering artists in the 90s because I didn't have cable television. We didn't have MTV or BET in Canada, even if you did have cable television. So it was just that 30 minutes. It was Rhapsody in the Mix. And, you know, if they didn't play it on Rhapsody or the Mix, you didn't know it existed, or at least I didn't. I mean, it was radio. I wasn't listening to radio as much, actually, so in the early 90s. So for me, it was source and vibe. And I would pick up these magazines. I bought them religiously. I was young, and um, I would read about artists. So it's almost like I was learning about their politics, you know, their personal lives. I was learning about them, and then I would go out and cop the record sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Not always, but often. So I think that's kind of a lost thing now where we don't know. Yeah, and, and the articles were really well written. Like, I remember them to this day. They were so good and thorough and deep and many pages and, um, oh, and the photography, too. And the photography, yeah, too. You're yeah. right. And so, so I still have a lot of those magazines in storage, and that's how I discovered a lot of artists. Um, but uh, what I modeled myself after in the 90s or what really impacted me lyrically 
um, am seeing was different things. So when it comes to content, it might have been like a Latifa or a Lauren a little bit. When it came to flow, it was definitely Nas, big pun, Feral Monch. Yes. And when it came to like delivery and, and cadence or, or just more energy on stage, it was Busta Rhymes, it was um, Onyx, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and these were the people that just really influenced me. Um, Interestingly enough, usually people make comparisons to me and people that weren't as influential because they just see me as a girl and them as like woman, woman, girl, girl, whatever. Like they don't compare me to dudes. So I used to joke that like I could completely bite Jay-Z's flow and I could bite this person's lyrics and this person's <laughs> content and you wouldn't know because you're not even comparing me to dudes. Yeah, so you no, know one, what I mean? no one would be like, nobody would even just know. Just took his whole style. Like, he, he actually said oh, wow. that verse. <laughs> right, <laughs> and nobody would, and yet, people would say, oh, you sound like Rod Digger, or you sound like Gene Gray, or you sound like, you know, and these aren't people that I, I respect them highly, but they weren't people that formed my style. You know yeah, what I mean? That's interesting. I even, um, one of the things I've, I've been doing a lot of writing in different fields, one of them is sports, and it's just crazy how often, especially when you're talking about, you know, the gold medal soccer team or the gold medal hockey team in Canada, it's always about like comparing these players to other women players. Like, whereas if, when you look at their style, you could their approach, you can be like, oh, this person like plays similar to Maradona or this, you know, hockey, like she plays similar to Mario Lemieux or something like that. But it's, it's always within that same realm of like, what other woman does this woman sound like? Um, it's interesting. But that list of rappers you're inspired by is like, if Voltron was a rapper, <laughs> like, that was crazy. Yeah, yeah, I've always said my whole career, I mean, if somebody, if, I always said that I wanted to be a female Pharaoh Monch. That was just my thing. Yeah, big up Pharaoh. Always love everyone who loves Pharaoh Monch. Um, Toon Crew, drawing and illustration has been a part of your life since childhood. Um, but you put it down for a while. Um, what caused you to pick it back up? I know you kind of touched on that in your opening, and what effect has um, prioritizing that, bringing that back to the center of your life, had on you? Well, you know, it was it was really a moment that I had with my son, uh, my eldest son. I have three boys, and my my six year old son, Jaden. You know, I was asking him, like, you know, you would ask every other kid at a certain age what they want to be when they grow up. And, um, you know, he said, you know, the usual kid catchphrase, you know, cop or doctor or something like that. I'm like, so, yeah, that's, that's really cool, man. Um, but I wanted to instill sort of um, an entrepreneurial spirit in him. And, yeah. like, you know, you don't have to go for these, you know, standard type jobs, I guess you would say, right? So in doing that, trying to tell him, you know, you should really do what you love, you know. Try it. What do you love to do? to figure that out and um in in that conversation i realized i'm not doing that you know what i'm saying like i was like yeah i was just like after all you know he's looking at me and then you know a couple days later i realized he's gonna he's gonna follow my lead right and and if i'm not doing it then how's he gonna do it and i have to break this sort of cycle because you know i i grew up i grew up in a family where it's like Boy, you better get a job. Like, yeah. get a job, jobby job, job. Right? <laughs> like, yo, my mom was like, straight up, those sneakers you love, I'm gonna stop buying them at a certain time, right? So, so you know, you're taught, you're taught that, and you can understand it's a generational thing, right? right. If you don't come from a, a family where, you know, everyone, someone owns something, or they're they're business business minded, or or something like that. So, 
so that's what led me to realize that, hey, I got to live out my life to show my children the path of, uh, you know, true happiness and doing something you love and your passion. And in doing that now, like, I would say I started this in October, like, really going at it. And um, I, could see, I could see the change in my son. Like, he'll come in the room where in my office where I'm doing my art, and he'll, he'll grab his, his little tools and his pencils and his crayons, <laughs> and he would sit down, and he's like, Daddy, look, I'm doing it like you. And he'd be like, you, you, you show me, you show me his work. He's like, Dad, look how I did the shading just like you and, and stuff oh, like man. that. So, um, my, so in teaching my son, it was a teachable moment for me, and it sort of transformed my thinking also. So, yeah. That's amazing. Um, I had asked a bunch of people to respond to like what you would put on a billboard. And one of the funny ones was, um, you can be anything you want as long as it's a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> and it was like, quote, parent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's cool that you're, that you're instilling that. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And leading that example. Um, we have to go back to the basement with Mel. So you talk about your dad having his like own domain downstairs where he would go and play music of every kind. Um, how did his influence in terms of having that space, playing music all the time in the range, mm -hmm. affect how you listen to music, how you um, select music, and how you play music? Um, well, for me, I think like a lot of people here, um, my parents were immigrants from South America, from Guyana. I won't have the argument that uh, these are West Indians, we know this. <laughs> West Indian in culture, South American in geography. But anyway, um, first generation Canadian. Um, so my dad growing up, um, he brought some of his music from Guyana, but he also made a habit of you know carving out his own space mm -hmm. for himself and he had I guess you would call it a man cave now, but I know a lot of West Indian parents, especially the dads, they, you know, do up the basement and make their own little bar, have yeah, their own little yo, space, have the yo. cricket parties in the basement <laughs> and that kind of thing. So when my dad had a hard day at work, you know, he'd pour himself a little whiskey and go into his, his, um, his man cave. And it was his private space, but he had a crazy collection of music. So mm -hmm. basically everything that you would expect a West Indian dad to have, like Arrow and Sparrow and all of that. <laughs> but he also had like Liberace and Charlie Pride, and along with like Roberta Flack and Anita Baker and all of that. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up listening to all these different types of genres of music. So everything from like soca to R&B to like Louis Primo, who is an Italian um, singer, old school singer. But um, and that's kind of what developed my love of music. And um, yeah, just having respect for records and for vinyl. Yeah. My, my dad bought uh, me and my brother's turntables because he wanted us to you know, keep off my tings. Don't touch my tings. <laughs> He didn't, he didn't think, yeah, I want my kids to be DJs or, you know, he don't think like that. It's just, yeah, just keep, keep, keep your paws off of my stuff. And, you know, little did he know that he was influencing, you know, uh, some, his son to become a rapper. He was influencing his daughter to become a DJ and influencing his younger son to become a producer. Wow. So, 
I'm sure that wasn't the intent. Like, they're still, even though, you know, <laughs> their oldest son is, you know, a multi Juno award winner. You know, I, I've done a little thing or two over the past 25 little, years. I'm still not a doctor. <laughs> I'm still not a doctor or a lawyer. And it's like, you have to do stuff for the love. So, and that's very important for your kids to see. As a mother um, who has a daughter, two sons and a daughter, it's very important for your kids to see that even though, you know, you're grinding nine to five, you still have, you still make time for your passion. Because your, your kids need to see that, you know, the world is a hard place, but you need to make time for yourself. And it's worth it to invest in your passion, whatever that might be. It might be um, visual arts, it might be music, it might be gardening, it might be whatever, volunteer work, helping other people. They need to see that, you know, no matter what the world kind of um, throws your way, having that passion and acting on it is a way that you're not only helping yourself, but you're helping other people. So they need to see that. You know, when you say that, um, I think of this conversation I had a friend with a friend of mine who he works all around the world and his children are, you know, usually a continent away from him. And I was asking him, like, how do you do that? And how, like, and it's, you know, he has a lot of pain of not being around them. But what he said was that um, he wants to show them that it's possible to succeed, not just live your dream, but succeed at your dream. He's like, the best thing I can give them is to show them that you know, I, that they can succeed at their dream, um, which is like a really, you know, like I'm not saying that that's the right decision, the wrong decision, but like to that, to the extreme of what you're saying of like how important it is to, to show your children, um, you know, that you're living and doing what you love. Um, you, you're going to sing some Louis Primo for us? No? <laughs> no, I won't. <laughs> um, I thought I'd try. Um, Chetto, and if anyone listens to the, um, you know, the podcast, um, the Come Up Show, definitely before you leave, subscribe. What's the what else? And and uh, like, or no, what's, you rate it five stars. Rate and review, yeah. Give yeah, me five rate, stars. Rate, don't rate, review, and subscribe, so that he can get bigger platform to get better, better guests. Right? I got it. Yo, you got yo. You're a listener for real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't know how to, if uh, I'm always educating people on uh, podcasts blowing up, but there's still a lot of people yeah. uh, don't who know. don't know. So if you want a tutorial after, I'll show you on your phone. Yeah, <laughs> specifically the example will be the come up show, and you know, um, but no, I, I think that it's you know it's really I I say that it's in a really serious note because I think that a lot of times we overlook the it could take you could within 30 seconds, 60 seconds, two minutes support good work that's coming out of the city and how else are we gonna build and grow our scene here if like you have someone who's been doing a podcast for 10 years and has an incredible, like Kendrick Lamar early on and then you, you know, in, I got introduced to Ali who's like an amazing um, artist from Toronto, incredible production behind her songwriting through the podcast so um, you know, that's in the city, you know, and I think we can look around and see those little ways we can support. Um, but. That's a PSA, not my question. <laughs> um, the question is, you know, in your interviews, you always start very personal. Like, where did you grow up? Um, where do you live? What was your household? Siblings and all that kind of stuff. Um, why do you start with that? Why is that so important in terms of how you conduct interviews and, and um, 
begin your conversation with people? Uh, because they're human beings, right? And uh, Eternia was saying in the magazines, you got to get to know the artists, you read about their story, and then like uh, you went to buy their music or motivated you. And I think uh, uh, it's now uh, music has almost become disposable in terms of a, new, a million songs out every day. Mm. There's a new song out right now. So what? What's, what's you, there isn't an immediate urgency for people now is when you say, I have a new song out, right? Yeah. So uh, the podcast is not 10 years. I've only been doing that for a couple of years, uh, but I started in radio. Right, right. Uh, but when I was doing a radio show, it was all about the music. And then I, if I did an interview, I was asked the artist, what's this song about? And then play the music. Right, right. But now it's kind of switches about all about you and who you are. Uh, and uh, and the, then we'll talk about the music, but it's about like you personally, your journey, your where you, how it started and all that, uh, with the goal being like the listener was like, wow, I like this person. But why, I like what, about what their, I like their story. That? Like where, where did that begin, that realization that it, I need to talk to you about more than just the song or the album you're promoting or what I'm about to play. Like I want to get to know you as a person and I want my listeners to... Yeah, because feel I feel like we as people like, uh, the people who we like, we want to get to know or we're interested right. in knowing more about them or supporting them, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of actually a tip that I give to artists nowadays, uh, you know, not as many people hand out CDs anymore, but like if you go to an event or a concert uh, or a conference or whatever, artists used to do when everybody used to hand out CDs, they'd be like, yo, here's a CD. And like, that's it. And then they leave, like, you know, right. they would like, they would basically like using me, like they don't even like, they don't even introduce themselves. Right. And why am I going to be interested in your CD? Uh, Another artist, what he would do is like he, you know, uh, he's telling me this story. He went to a conference and he'd be out, say, in a smoke pit or something like that and not even tell people he's an artist and just mm -hmm. connect with them, mm -hmm. right? Like get to know them as people and then they would be interested in him. Like, what do you do? Right. And then... Yeah, by the way... Right? Here you go. <laughs> uh, so the reason why in my interviews, why I ask about... Because I want to know who they are, right? right like right. I always ask... Tell me about, like, are you the only sibling? Were you the middle child? Are you the eldest? Like, mom and dad around the house. Like, uh, what were they playing in the house? What were you growing up to? Uh, where did you live? Like, where did you grow up? Tell me more about that. So I can trace it from, uh, from that origin point to how they came to love music. Because yeah. I want to get to know who they are and how they became to be an artist. Yeah, it's interesting. That's one of the things I love about listening to your show is that arc where it really starts with that. And it's like you get this picture in your mind of what their household was like and, you know, how their siblings' relationships and parents and all that. It's really cool um, approach. And, Eternia, you're smiling hard oh, while he's saying because this. Because he interviewed me when At Last came out backstage at the Opera House. You remember that, right? That was a moment. And I, I'm pretty sure that I said this is the best interview I've ever had. I was blown away. You remember that? Yeah. How long ago was that? And the fact that I remember that is crazy because I, I don't remember a lot of interviews. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why I'm smiling. Is it you don't remember it or they're not very memorable? I mean... Shots fired. They, they run the spectrum, but his was on very memorable. And, and that's the first time I met you, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, was 2010. Least. What was wow. powerful about that is that, that is that is so applicable to anything, you know? Like you... Go in right away, like, oh, this is my pitch. This is what I'm selling. This is what I do. This is how I think we can connect. Versus, like, oh, hold on, who are you? You know, who am I? Like, let's connect on a personal level first, which is beautiful. Um, I wanted to ask you, 
So, Eternia, you, for now 20 years, have been recording music, performing, putting out, like, touring in different parts of the world, and in the studio with such a range of artists. Um, and as a woman in the music, it's always, you know, it's, this is Eternia, she's amazing for a female MC, and there's always this conversation about the women in hip-hop rather than just artists, but how have you seen it evolve um, for good, for bad, for ugly? Um, and what would you say as, as you know, someone with your experience in the music, do you see what's happening right now in terms of women in the music? Man, I could go so many places with that and I just can't help but think that you probably have... Um, Mel probably has more perspective because of the fact that she's a DJ. Um, and so I can intentionally clue out, like I can just unplug, whereas you can't, right? So she probably knows a little more about uh, what's out now. But um, so my experience is obviously back to the 90s, there's one, two, three media outlets, major media outlets. And, um, you know, there's a number of female MCs um, that are killing it, uh, that are mainstream, that are pop culture-ish at the time, that all represent a different type of person and a different type of woman. They were very diverse uh, when it comes to what they represented. Um, now, as you mentioned, like the splintering of the media, there's thousands and thousands, if not millions of channels, dependent on what you're interested in. And I think um, hip hop is now definitely more mainstream than it ever was in the 90s. Yeah. And so everyone's, if, if you thought everyone was rapping before, <laughs> everyone's really rapping now. And, um, and so I, I will say, like, I, I ran into MC Light once at a show. We were actually billed the same night in Brooklyn. And I remember stopping her and asking on camera, I was like, what do you say to people that say there are no female MCs out there? And she's like, I look at them. And she, like, look, gave me this dead stare, yeah. you know? And she's like, and I asked them, do you really want to know the answer to that question? Like, are you asking because you really want to know? She's like, because if you really want to know, I could show you a bunch. Like, basically, yeah. from time, there's always been a lot of MCs that happen to be born or, you know, identify as a woman. From time, there has been MCs in every city I go to that are female that rap. Since forever. Mm -hmm. um, but what's happening, I think, is we're maybe hearing more about them just due to the fact that the, there's more outlets for people to hear about them. Um, I love No Name. Like, I'm sure there's some other females out there. Like, actually, I can't... I, I, um, I can think of a few that I really rock with. Um, I always discover new MCs that happen to be women that are dope um, all the time. So for me, that's never a surprise. But what is very discouraging, um, and that makes me wonder about putting out another album, <laughs> is, um, is just what seems to get the likes, the reposts, the listens, the views. Um, it's, it's not anything I can identify with or relate to. It's not anything I'd want my children to relate to. And, um, and it seems to be where the world is going when it comes to... And it wasn't like that. And then, like, I don't want to be, like, one of those old heads. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but Lauren won a whole bunch of Grammys. And Latifah was super huge, is super huge. And, like, there were people that you could respect and play for your kids. And I don't know if that exists now in the mainstream when it comes to women rapping. Um, and when I say mainstream, I mean, like, people that, you know, that don't go searching. We search, yeah. you know? Um, but Mel maybe should jump in. Well, it's yeah, discouraging I, for me. Yeah, and I it's think my, my, my question to Mel, which is a follow-up on that, is, yes, the state of music, but also I mean, you have a compilation you're putting together that is due to come out in a couple weeks, right? Um, so if you can, I guess, speak to your thoughts on the state of the music, but also 
um, what's behind the compilation? Why are you going into that space and, and pulling people together to um, actually curate? Tell people a, a who's on it. Artists. Yeah, and definitely where they can get it and all of that. Okay, well, initially, um, I decided to do this compilation to, as an extension of the celebration of my 20th anniversary of DJing on radio. Um, for that celebration, uh, I did something with Manifesto with some of my favorite MCs, including Eternia. And um, it was such a beautiful experience that I wanted to do something that had some kind of longevity and use, I guess, all the work that I've put in to make it a little bit easier for coming female artists to get out there and just support them. It's one thing if I play it on radio, okay, that's a two-hour show. I'm not putting it up you know, as a podcast so people don't get to experience it after. But an actual compilation is something that can go all around the world with you know, the right amount of... Of, of work and, and support. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I had intended to do. It took a lot longer than I thought it would take. Thank you. I don't know how much. Can you guys hear me? Oh, no, we need the mic, we need the mic. Oh, well, I do yeah. need the mic? Okay. Yeah, oh, it's for the video, okay. Um, yeah, it took a lot longer than I thought it would take because this is my 25th anniversary this year. So everything happens as it should, um, but I'm so proud of, you know, what is the final, the final product. Um, Eternia is on the, on the compilation. Phoenix Pagliacci, I don't know if y'all have heard of the sorority. If you haven't heard of them, get familiar. Uh, Keisha Fresh, uh, Jelly Two Fly, uh, Lola Buns, Rod Digga, um, Mishy Me. And I'm just so grateful that everybody came together and just said, yeah, Boogie, I'll do it for you. And I called it the life project because when you're doing something that you're passionate about, sometimes life gets in the way. Mm -hmm. But you got to push through. If it's something that you love to do, you got to push through and persevere and make it happen. So that's why I call it the life project. So it's coming out soon. Um, and as far as like the state of music right now, like Eternia said, it's easy to because we came up in the golden era of hip-hop, it's easy to make that comparison and be like, well, back in my day, blah, blah, blah. But as a DJ, there are a lot of DJs out there who are stuck in that era. And nothing that comes out now seems to please them. But, I mean, it took me a while to get into trap, I'll admit it. But now I like to get turned up, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, when I put the set together, the same amount of love that I would put into a, like a, a classic 90s set, put that same amount of, of love and passion into a trap set, it's bananas. Yeah. And as long as you're having a good time as a DJ, the people who are listening are going to have a good time. Yeah, I think so there's good, there's good things to be found in, in every era. Because even in the golden era of hip-hop, the people who came before us in the 80s, they were like, what's this stupidness? What's this yeah, nonsense? Yeah. Daisy age. Why are you guys talking about? Why are you guys talking about guns? It's uh, hip hop supposed to be about you know love and parties. Back in the '90s, you had Mob Deep and Group Home, and they were talking about like some real grimy shit. Yeah, you know, Group Home actually, when you listen to it, there's so many motivational speeches within Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Really, Absolutely. You know, I was listening to it this week. It's funny you mentioned uh, mentioned that, but 
you know, I'm going to say something that, you know, people might be like, what are you saying? But to the point that you're saying about the era is like, you know, and me, I love Nas, like, love Nas. Um, but if you were to say, let's put Nas's first three albums beside Kendrick's first three albums, like, we have an MC in, our, in this era now who's created three complete masterpieces, um, whereas Nas's first three records, whether those are three complete masterpieces, you know, and it's, and it's not to take away from his legacy at all, but it's like, I think one of the challenges we have is that hip hop was not the pop music in the 90s. Like, Billboard, so what we look at as hip hop is also a lot of the, the, what's the content and how it's marketed and developed, it's like, it's the top 10 of Billboard all the time, it's almost all hip hop. So we're also, there, I think there are just as many, if not more, talented MCs, MCs that are, you know, bringing forward all kinds of substance and critique on the world, but there's also like way more room in the pop charts for hip hop now. So I think that's a part of it. I don't know what you're... And there's a lot more room for women now too. Um, as much as I love Cardi B, and I do love Cardi B, because hey. I like to get turned up too. Um, the only comparison or the only thing I want to say is the difference between now as far as women uh, images in hip hop and you know, back in the 90s is, like Eternia had mentioned, there's only one kind of female being portrayed right now. And I think especially the young women, the young ladies come and the young men, they need to see that diversity, and we're not seeing it. Yeah. Like, because there are girls like that. You know, get some yeah, money. Yeah, yeah, okay, all right, cool. But what about, you know, the more conscious women who, you know, there's, there's different kinds of women, and even the same woman might have different sides of her personality. Right. That needs to be shown, too, and it's not. Yeah, and I mean, I think people appreciate someone like Cardi B because there is that complexity. Well, yeah. You know, one minute she's saying what she says as like coming from reality TV, and then she's talking about what's going on in Libya so directly, um, and using her Instagram platform for that. But I think the the complexity of who women are spe specifically in the music is is I would agree is missing right now. Um, Tune Crew, I wanted to ask you. You did a series recently, if you should check it out, at Toon Crew on his Instagram, a series of Canadian um, hip-hop icons. I'm just wondering, where did the urge come from to create that? Like, why did you feel like you had to, to do that, had to make that? Um, uh, it was part homage. Like, um, I remember, like, growing up early on, like, uh, like again, early 90s, and even, even late 80s, going to New York to visit my cousins and you know New York New York hip-hop is huge right it's the birthplace and coming from Canada and Toronto not really having anything sort of where the badge to say yeah well we got these MCs right and it wasn't until like you know I saw Maestro Fresh West one day yeah. and I was like and he was dope like dope that was the moment where I was like okay I'm gonna call my cousin up right now and be like, "We got one, right?" <laughs> so, right. So that was that was a super moment for me. I wonder me. how many people actually had that conversation. Yo, probably like mad people, like because before I don't I don't know, but like before uh, Fresh West, like man, it was like dark times, bro. <laughs> like you know what I'm saying. So um, it's part. It's pretty much like 
yeah, paying homage to these people. Because I, I also did a Mishimi piece where it was just like, you know, she was another one, like a, a female, female MC where you're just like, it didn't even matter she was female. She was just dope. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it was like, we, yo, we got another one. Like, yeah. so it was like, it just, I feel like it just started something, you know, in the city, right? And just like artistically, it, it, it kind of like, um, it put that battery in your back too. It's like, if these people are from my area, area, from my city, then I can do something artistic too and, and it can mm -hmm. be heard around the world, right? And um, yeah, they were just great examples. So I just wanted to um, sort of, again, immortalize them in a way. Um, and for me too, it's just like a process of just getting out these things that I love, you know what I'm saying? Not just keeping them in here, right? So um, just visually getting them out too so yeah i love i loved seeing seeing that series especially the way it's lined up because you can look at daniel caesar and drake who are in your series and then look at um mishimi and maestro and see like the feeling that I, all of the impacts that they've had on me come you know looking at them together in that series is like kind of blends their impact where it's like there's that foundation where we got one but now it's like you literally you can go to most cities in the world now and you say you're from toronto and people are like oh you're from toronto yeah like wow. right, right that was not yeah the, the six like, the six yeah. it's, it's real like and you know then if you then if you can say yeah i, I know someone that knows drake um that <laughs> <it> helps uh, <laughs> yeah exactly um, and it's funny too because, like, it's, I was listening to this interview with Double Soul, their um, you know foundational hip hop artist in Toronto, where they would they they tell this funny story about how they would go to Trinidad and pretend that they were from New York, and then always get caught because oh, yeah. they would be like just reciting like street intersections that they heard. And yeah, I mean, just like Bro. mixing it up though, like. 42nd doesn't connect with 43rd. Like, it's not an intersection. Bro, I remember <laughs> I remember going to New York and, like, spending, like, only a week there. And I wanted a, an American New York accent so badly that when I came back, I was like, yo, dog, yo, bro, I, I speak American now. And I was just like, yeah, y'all, yeah, y'all, see? But that's, like, yeah. that was a feeling then. Like, you just, you wanted, like, you wanted to be American, like, so, so badly. And it was part influence because you're listening to these cats on the albums and you're hearing the cadence and stuff like that. And it's just, it resonates with you, right? Like, you, like you connect in a way. So, um, yes, but, like, it's interesting, even that, like, with lingo and talk. Like, Drake is sort of putting the, the Toronto slang at the forefront now. And people are like, what is this now, right? Yeah, yeah, so now yeah. this, like, the way we talk is the, is the cool way to talk right now. So yeah. it's... More time still, right? More time still, right? For your head top, like so, like it's all full, like 180, man. It's pretty yeah, dope. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty dope. It is. It's um. There's actually some people too who are making, trying to make a little lane for themselves by. I, I've I've seen this YouTube series where. They're, they'll do a video call with some like people in like Atlanta or whatever, and then raise up Toronto terms and be like, "What do you think that means?" You know, so like catty. Yeah. What does catty mean? What does waste mean? Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Their their answers are hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's, it's kind of paved the way for like um, Trey Richards and like Foreal Entertainment to sort of have a viability online too, because they're hard on the lingo, right? But you know, I feel like. Drake kind of sort of gave them the introduction or people the introduction to the sort of lingo, right? 
Um, yeah, and, and I think yeah. that's important for creators and creatives right across the spectrum. Like, you look at it and say, like, um, you know, this guy, Mauricio Ruiz, who manages Jesse Reyes, I saw him post something recently where he said, I watched Top Boy, and he's like, where is the Toronto version of this story? There's no excuse, you know? And then you look at, for example, like Canadian artists who are in their lyrics, they're talking about like places in Toronto, and their music video had American money in it, and that was not their choice. That's the record exec saying, in order for this to be more marketable, we cannot put Canadian money because people are going to be thinking you have monopoly money. Monopoly money, yeah, that's what they <laughs> call it. Versus like real money in is the American greenback, right? And so um, how the, the currency that the city has through the music is now something where I think stories and podcasts and radio and documentary and film and visual art and all in dance and theater, all these spaces that are telling stories that are Toronto stories or Ontario stories, Canada stories have a lot more um, industry gatekeepers realizing that, oh, I, we, maybe we can make this, maybe we can sell this. There's still a maybe, they need to know there's no maybe, but um, yeah, the, the, so. You're seeing the difference now, and you know, the move or formerly Flow is not playing new hip hop, and yeah. playing Daniel Caesar saying, oh, because of streaming and the stats now, hip hop being number one, right. now we're gonna, but yeah, rather than being helping build the scene, yeah. which they got the application approved to do, um, now that the scene is built, they're Topic. jumping back on it. But again, that, that you you could listen to the station, and it's a pop, it's a pop station, right? Even though this aesthetic is hip hop, what they're choosing is from the pop charts, how they're positioning, how they're talking about the music, even songs that they get on, right? Like. If you listen to, th you know, like I, I heard an announcer like three days ago on Flow, on the move, um, saying, oh, I heard this brand new song by Daniel Caesar. And it was like the, the single that was playing Get you. a year ago, like literally a year ago. I was in, you know, my workplace and we had a radio station and that song was a song we were breaking a year ago. And she's saying... This is a brand new song, like literally said those words. So I think that um, that's an interesting dimension. And I think a real kind of tangent that's important to hold on to is like, how is the, the industry and gatekeepers jumping on some of the success late rather than using the infrastructure and the resources to invest in continuing to build the industry? And you've talked a lot about Chetto about the, the lack of some infrastructure in an industry here compared to some other places. But I wanted to ask you a, 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 question, a different question that kind of ties into that, which is when it comes to Canadian music, in term, when I say substance in terms of like authenticity, emotional honesty, kind of like general presentation of who you are as an artist, do you find that there's a difference between what's being made here is there more of those features and what's being made here than in other places in the world? Uh, uh, what I'll talk about is what, because I've been doing it for 10 years, I'll talk about what I've seen in the history because now uh, we're so popping that we're dictating. Like you, it's mm -hmm. hard for people now mm -hmm. in most mainstream music to tell the difference between is this guy from Canada or America, right? Like, right. That line is becoming blurred for sure. Yeah. So uh, I, I'll comment on you know, because I started my radio show, you know, when I was at Western University in 2007. So at that time, uh, I felt like there was a difference in Canadian music 
in the in the content, mm-hmm. uh, there's always going to be people who are uh, trying to mimic what America's hip hop in America is going to sound like. There's always, you know, I can't say no that doesn't exist, but right. mostly the stuff that I was coming across and playing, I felt like they were authentic because they had no other choice. Like people wouldn't believe you. Right. Like people wouldn't believe you. Not only that, like what are you going to try to like? There, uh, it wasn't that that realistic in 07 or even earlier to think that you're going to blow up as a Canadian artist. Like, it didn't happen that much. So I might as well make music that I love because this is my voice. This is my, right. my therapy, my outlet. And that's what I'm going to do it for, right? Mm-hmm. That's the type of stuff that I was gravitating towards. So I, I felt like, yes, there, there, uh, there is, there was a difference. Uh, and uh, that's what I was attracted to. So uh, you're saying, like, basically yeah. the lack of the believability of, like, mimicking other sounds and the lack of, like... Commercial guess, success. Commercial success. So it's like, well, if I'm doing this, like, I might as well be who I am because... Yeah. yeah, like, uh, yeah, that's also a... Bi- like, you know, what, what am I... So as a radio DJ at that time, what was I attracted to as well too, right? So... Um, that that was the type of content that I was attracted to, and I was my mind was blown as well too because uh, growing up uh, in London, I'm originally from London, Ontario. Uh, other than much music or rap city or whatever, um, and the established Canadian artists, Cardinal, Shaklair, mm. Socrates, and so on and so forth. Uh, when I heard, I don't know if you guys know, every radio station, every Canadian radio station has to play 35% Canadian music. It's like law, like Show to support. Can-con. Yeah. Uh, so when I had a when I when I first got my hip hop radio show, mm-hmm. I had to play forty percent because I was a volunteer. And in case I fe- messed up, they're like, "Yo, you play forty percent just in case <laughs> you're buffer. short." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because we don't get in trouble. So that meant. So the challenge was, and this is an old seven. The challenge was, okay, if I'm playing forty percent, no, did somebody say Drake? Because Drake wasn't around like that in two thousand. This is before So Far Gone anything like that, this is 2007, 2006. The challenge that I had is, as a listener, if I'm going to play Jay-Z, the next song, if it's Canadian, can't sound that different. It can't sound like right. this kid recorded on a $6 mic. Yeah. <laughs> because, because the listener is going to tune out. No, right? They don't no, care. That's not even a joke. Yeah. So I have a... I have a friend named Kareem, and this guy, I used to love listening to Power Move every Saturday, no matter what I was doing, where I was in the city, like, that's on, you know, I'm on, on CKLN, and Kareem, whenever, the, and it would happen, because they had to play it too, the Canadian set came on, he would turn off there, and he would, like, I'm like, you don't even know what that song is, you guys, I could tell, I could tell, it sounds Canadian. <laughs> You just described like every one of my friends. Exactly, exactly. That's how it was. And another example is like back then as well, like Canadian TV. Do you guys remember if you changed to a Canadian TV show? You just knew, you just looked at it, you're like, ew. Automatically, I was like, ew. Like there's something, not even thinking, right? What I will say is if you want to experience that feeling again, just watch Buffalo TV. Yeah. You get that oof, you're like, the news. There? So, Ooh, yeah, so that was a challenge that I had as a radio DJ, as a, a guy who's playing good music. I had to find music that was just as good as what the American yeah. stuff, which is where my mind was like blown. That's how I found all these artists who I came to Toronto. I went to local shows and yeah, people like uh, Shad or Slack at a Beat Child and like, you know, just all these artists. I'm like, 
how come where is this how come it's not on the radio mm-hmm. why is this on tv right right and that's that's where my mission started to like really support canadian music yeah, that that's that's amazing because I think that like and when you do look at the constraints, right? Like, people when you say six dollar mic, like literally there were people who were that's what they were doing. Like there was a great interview with um, Swift Larac, um, an amazing DJ and producer, part of Grassroots. Who, if you hear their stuff, you know, Easy on the Motion is one of the things he produced, and um, G Knight and Elemental, and like a lot of amazing some of the stuff that did stand with anything else that was coming out in the world, and. Um, you talk like the the things that they figured out and hacked and kind of figured out how to put certain equipment together and create a song without having the infrastructure to actually make a song um, is is a part of the the history too. So it's an important thing. I, but I want to see did any of you want to chime in on this conversation on that Toronto sound and and just just in terms of I mean I, I think you you've gone to an interesting place with it. But um, yeah, just following up on Chetto said. Um, I think because um, I started DJing in Toronto, I think I had um, a little bit more of an advantage because I was right here. And I had immediate a- access to, um, to the venues where people were performing and that kind of thing, and they were easier to reach. Um, but definitely what you're saying as far as quality, that is something that kind of contributed to the whole screw face capital. Like as soon as you heard, <laughs> as soon as you heard it, people would screw their face and like turn it off. And you're absolutely right about that. But over time, um, artists either hacked it or they got help from their cousins who had more money or more access or mm-hmm. more resources. And we got the quality up to whatever is comparable to what's playing on radio. To the point where now, like you said, the line is blurred. Yeah. My daughter was a huge, or is a huge um, Daniel Caesar fan, and she didn't know he was from Toronto. Wow. She was floored. Like, she wow. couldn't believe it. You and that's you, amazing. That's such an interesting example you bring, because when you say Screwface Capital, like, it's one thing to turn <laughs> off the radio, but there is, most times what would happen is... you Bottled. Bring, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm saying, like... Literally, like Where you, Toronto's you go to notorious a show, for that. Yeah, and yeah. people would be angry because they're like, I did not come to see you. I came to see EPMD. I came to see Redman. And I just want to say that I actually, so I'm not from Toronto. You but actually I, threw a bottle? Are you going to say that? No, no, no. But okay. listen, I'm not from Toronto, but I've spent more than a third of my life here. So I do call it home. Um, yeah. And I can attribute um, my um, stage show and just how I perform on stage to screw face Torontonians because. Yeah. <laughs> I would get up on stage and know that people are just looking for a reason to bottle and hate me. Yeah. Like, just looking for a reason. Yeah. That's, like, like we're talking, like, late 90s and then early 2000s. And so, um, and, um, yeah, that I was... Anyways, that's all. I, I'm going somewhere else with it. I went to New York City, uh, early 2000s, start rocking and get so much love. Like, they love the show. They love, they love me just rapping. They think mm-hmm. I can spit. It's not the fact that I look the way I look. Like, yo, you're a dope MC. Yeah. And I realized that I think I learned how to perform from having to perform consistently for people that wanted to hate me yeah. always. Yeah. Like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I know that. You were literally angry in their emotions <laughs> that you were on stage. Like, they like, didn't want yeah. to like me ever. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. I did that for so long, like a decade, and I that's how I know how to rock. Well, and you think about how far that's come because... Like, Daniel Caesar could sound as he sounds and do what he does in that era, and people would have had the same response. And now it's a situation where it's like, 
he had to turn one date into five dates, sold those out, and then they were going for like a bill 50 US dollars on StubHub, you know, from a $50 ticket. Like the way that um, now the city is really like getting behind some of the artists that are, that are from here. And I think most people would probably say that I'm not trying, my playlist has a lot of Canadian artists, not because I'm trying to, you know, buy local. Um, <laughs> but because that's, those are my favorite songs. Those are my favorite artists, which is and, and it's not to say that, you know, Toronto didn't have the talent. We did have the talent. Like, if you dig in the crates a little bit, you, you'll find some gems. Follow yeah. Theology 3 on Instagram. He's been playing all yeah, the gems. Yeah, he's been posting a lot of, a lot of gems. Um, but I think, to a certain degree, it was access to resources and just the support. Like, as soon as we heard that somebody was from Toronto, unless it's your boy, you're not going to support it. So, or her. Even if it's it, it wasn't, boy, you're not going to support Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you wait to see how he does on stage first and then, yeah. But, yeah, um, yeah the talent, we've always had talent. We've always had talent. Just now that it's being recognized outside of the city and we actually believe in ourselves now. I think that's a big difference. Well, yeah, and what's crazy when you say that is like going to, whether it's, DJs like I remember going to different spots in the states and hearing a DJ who's like big a big name and they couldn't match a beat properly in a party that's full and I was like got spoiled in Toronto where like even people who could never get a show were just like DJing in their dad's basement when they weren't home um, and being able to like just have this high level or or what a lot of times in other parts of the world we call a freestyle which is like I'm just saying a verse that I memorized right now versus like the the expectation in the city. Like if you are were a rapper um, in Toronto, like you needed to be able to off the top of your head sound as good as anyone else on a verse. Um, yeah, so yeah, this is, I love it, I love it. I, I just wanna finish the comment. That's what I'm really happy about, uh, about uh, Canadians just being open-minded. And all we need is just for our, like you, to be open-minded. Yeah. That, just, uh, that's all we needed because we were, I think there was like, a, like we were, we felt like inferior. Mm. We had to look to the States. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, why, uh, I don't know if you guys know, I feel an energy in Toronto. Yeah. You feel that? Yeah, the yeah. hope, the faith, yeah, like yeah, anything yeah, yeah. is possible. That's an energy that I'm definitely feeling. Yeah, yeah. It's in this room right now, too. Exactly. Uh, so, now, whatever you want to do, whatever the thing you do is, do it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I feel that it's on so many levels. Um, I wanted to shift for the last part of the conversation before we get into um, some dialogue with the audience is talking about that conversation of these bubbles that we, you know, are in where something that's not your views, it's like, oh, that's fake news. I don't have to listen to that if I disagree with it. Or that's some extremist thing. Or, or you just don't actually come across it, right? Like your, your information about the world is often like what friends of yours are, are sharing. Um, and I'm wondering, Mel, as a DJ, you know, what, what, do you, what are some transferable lessons or from the fact that like as a DJ, you have to go outside of what you would just seek if you were just a listener on your own in terms of finding music that you don't necessarily, like you talked about the, the trap thing where at first you were closed off to that. And if you weren't a DJ, you might still to this day never really be into trap, but having to play it 
you then got to understand like how beautiful and amazing a trap set can be when it's done right. You know what I mean? So, see, with that, <laughs> 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 yeah, Hennessy and trap are like you know peanut butter and jelly. Um, <laughs> So yeah, to to that point though, to the people who are who are not a DJ, could you just talk a little bit about how how we can take the approach of a DJ to you know how we're getting information, how we're connecting with people, how we're exposing ourselves to whether it's film or you know books or whatever that are outside of the the taste that this bubble is going to keep feeding you. Um, I mean, it's definitely easy to get comfortable and stay within that bubble. Um, but there's so much more out there. Like, even if you just watch Netflix, Netflix will tell you what you should be watching. <laughs> but, I mean, take a look outside, and, and that's what I, I had to make myself do. I mean, part of my job as a DJ is not just to play classic 90s stuff. I got to open up people to other things. And in order to do that, I got to get out of my... Um, the same old way of doing things and look into other genres in Spotify. I finally discovered a rap caviar, by the yeah, way. Yeah, Thank yeah. you for that link. No problem. <laughs> I didn't know what it was before. <laughs> um, but um, introduce listeners to, to new things. And I think that's one of my key responsibilities. It's a privilege for me to have a, a show on radio and to have been on radio for so long because there are people who try to do it and they never get to, or there's people who do it and they fall off. Um, but because there are so few resources in the city for artists, um, I think it's part of my responsibility to use radio and use that platform mm -hmm. to introduce um, the audience to, to emerging artists, whether they're from here or from wherever. And sometimes it, they don't all sound like Drake and they don't all sound like Jay-Z or whomever. Mm -hmm. They might sound a little bit different, but as long as they're dope, you know, who knows my, who, what might come out of that. Um, and I, I think that's pretty much what I would, what, what I would encourage people to do, just kind of look beyond what is being fed to you and question what's being fed to you. Like, yeah. why, why are you being sent down this Facebook rabbit hole? It's easy. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's interesting when you even give the Netflix example. Like, I, their algorithms are definitely not on point. Because I found a film, Sneakerheads, and I watched it. And I'm like, why did you not recommend this to me? This is like, you don't know me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love that doc. Like, it was so good. And uh, you know, I'm always surprised what's out there. But I think, like, yeah, I appreciate you. I'm sharing that, and I think that like we really have to be the the effort, and I think that's another element. It's it's not just the mentality, but it's it's the effort it takes because finding something that you haven't found already naturally, finding something that isn't fed to you, is not a certain path. It's not an easy thing to do, right? It's not a straightforward, but it it's it's very valuable when you do. Um, and I'd also encourage people to to share information. If you find something dope, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with your people. Post it on Instagram. Um, just yeah. share, share the SoundCloud link. Like That's how artists get discovered and how they get traction. It's not just you know, a matter of... It, it is a, a huge percentage of luck, but 
that's a way of showing support. Yeah, it's, it's so true. Like, the amount of things just I, I would share on an Insta story, you know, two teachers I know that are in my network are going to be presenting at the Hip Hop Symposium because I put that on my Insta story. They didn't know about it, you know, or like, you know, or the odd thing, like, you know, you'll connect with people too when they see that you're appreciating their work and you're sharing it. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of power in that. Like, we have that power to to expose our network, which then may expose their network to something that's not making it through the algorithms and the bubbles. Um, Toon Crew, it's a crazy world. So many crazy things going on. Um, and I know for a period of time, you were in your art kind of getting sucked into like the reality show of Donald Trump and, and just like the anger connected to that and the frustration and the disbelief. Um, but I wanted to ask you how, on two levels, making your art and also the art that you're taking in is, is a part of coping with that and kind of maybe tuning that out sometimes or like not getting sucked into these like, you know, really intense narratives and, and kind of finding your grounding, finding your own balance. Yeah, def definitely, man. Um, I found out like for sure, like the whole Donald Trump thing was, you know, was in my head for a while. Like it was, it was really, draining the life out of me, especially when he first got elected, right? So, um, <laughs> I haven't posted them, but like a lot of my early drawings were like, just, you could tell they were angry at the situation, like, you know, devil horns and stuff on Donald Trump's head. And like, um, I, had one, I had one that was a little more nuanced. It was like, uh, it was Donald Trump at the inauguration and he had his hand swearing, the sworn in celebration. And um, I just had like these keystrokes at the bottom, uh, uh, Command Z, just undo this, right? Mm. Yeah, I was just like, <laughs> but like early on, it was like all oh, Donald Trump, and I was getting tired of staring at this guy's face. Like it was just really bothering me, right? But it was therapeutic in a way, right? Like it was like, um, again, I was just getting all this stuff out of my head. Um, so, and then I was getting like the, the Donald Trump one I did post, and um, you, you get a reaction from people online too, right? And and then you can have a conversation from there too. So a lot of a lot of the art that you know that's out there or that I I'm trying to make right now too uh, is contributing to that conversation and, and helping people to sort of dissect how they feel. Um, and like just to go back to the hip hop thing too. Like um, uh, everybody's heard uh, Joiner Lucas, right? His song "I'm yeah. Not a Racist." Like um that one hit me hard too like i was just like there was a lot of controversy behind that record too right like did he did he did he break down uh both sides properly and um and uh was he fair in his conversation because if everybody knows about that song it was like he was speaking from both perspectives um from the uh, perspective one someone who supported donald trump and then you know, i was a young black man he was speaking from um and it was his perspective so i know a lot of people online were like yo he did not uh, represent the, the 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 black consciousness too well, but either way, uh, it was a conversation, and that's sort of the important thing everybody's talking about, and that's what um, that's what I feel like the art art's supposed to do. Like mm -hmm. we're supposed to have these conversations, and as uncomfortable it is for me to like stare at Donald Trump's face for like two hours and resist doing double horns and stuff, but. You know, having that conversation is important, right? Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, it's always 
difficult too when to the the track you're talking about. I'm not a, or I'm not a racist. Um, yeah. to to make it an or like this is one side of the story and this is the other. I mean, the, it's never that simple, right? right? So, but the fact that those more complicated conversations have opened up off of that. Um, so I have one more question for our, our panel before we open it up. And I just want to bring people back to that first question we started with, which is like a moment um, this year, in the past year, where hip-hop or hip-hop art touched you, kind of had you seeing something outside of what you normally see, shifted how you're seeing the world. So if anyone does have things like you want to share about that or just conversations, questions, things you want to pick up on from the conversation. Um, so that, that last question is just around the whole element which you kind of touched on, which um, is the joy element, the stress relief element. Like what, what role does making that art, taking in that art, whether it's in a gallery, it's a film, it's um, the music, it's a book, it's a podcast, like how is you find that's playing a role in, in how you deal with the stress and the anxiety and the frustration and, and of these times and find joy and, and connection and community. Who wants to jump in? This is to everybody. I mean, um, I'm smiling because when you're talking and you say joy, like to me, um, I view, I try to view things holistically. So people, um, and you, like to me, it's not sides, it's like 360 degrees of like, perception mm -hmm. and more like you know what I mean and and um and and also like I view this world holistically and so like to me everything's spiritual like there's a spiritual element to everything like food can be spiritual um sex can be spiritual music can be spiritual and also mundane we can also abuse these things and then they're not right but um so for me what 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 brings me joy what music is the same thing that that brings me joy in any other kind of sphere of life because it's all interconnected and holistic. So, um, you know, out of the abundance of our heart we speak, there's the power of life and death in the tongue. Like when I hear things that are speaking, um, truth is a very dangerous term to say, but when I hear things that resonate with my spirit in a way that just gets me buzzing and goosebumps, and for me, usually that's constructive, not destructive. You know what I mean? It's building. It's teaching, it's inspiring, it's, 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 pers it's all these different things. But when I hear something like that, that makes me want to write, that makes me want to do music again, that makes me want to record an album, that makes me want to you know, perform, that makes me want to go to their shows, like whoever that, that musician is or that artist. Um, and I also feel the same way when I have an amazing conversation with friends or when I go to an art gallery or when I you know, see live music in a small venue or it doesn't have to be hip hop. Yeah. But um, there's a spiritual aspect of everything we do. For me as an artist, that is the fundamental basis now, not when I started, <laughs> but now with everything I do. And so that's what I look for um, in others and in music and to inspire, to be fed, to have fun for sure, to celebrate. Like, so I love, there's a scripture that says like, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is good, whatever, like of good rapport, whatever is, um, it's basically just saying whatever is light, meditate on these things. Mm. And, um, and that's kind of like, it's not to say that we can't talk about, we can't deal with or, um, look at the ugly truth of life. Like there is darkness. There is no light without darkness, yin yang. But I, when it comes to what I consume, what I intentionally consume, I am intentionally consuming things that allow me to meditate on those things. Wow, wow. Yeah. 
And that comes with, like, Netflix, too. Television, like, it's not just music. It's everything. Like, I just, there's certain things I don't watch that probably everybody watches because I don't need to have nightmares. Real talk. <laughs> Anybody who knows me will know that when it comes to, like, horror movies and stuff, I'm, no, I'm not I'm not, not going there. It. I'm not watching it. Yeah. No. But um, on the flip side of that, though, like, one of the things I think of is, like, the role of, um, joy and honesty. So, for example, like you have Future talks about drugs, but in his music, but he also talks about the fact that he doesn't do drugs. Um, whereas, uh, what's that guy, Kid Cudi? You know, where he's talking about dealing with emotions and depression and the and coping, and not necessarily saying that's a good thing, but it's from an honest place. Like this is the way I feel. This is what I'm doing, and a lot of people can see themselves in that. And but then it's like, do you want to be taking that in? all the time versus, you know, sometimes, so. And, and historically, my music actually dealt with my darkness, which is kind of weird, but, but always from that perspective that you're saying, honesty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like Brave Diggers. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyone else? No, no? Do, okay, let's, let's open it up. Anybody have a question? Someone you want to jump on? Yes. Introduce yourself as well, please. Oh. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Planning yeah. on that. Okay. Hi, everyone. My name is Fona. Uh, great way to remember my name is with a telephone gesture. Um, <laughs> one thing, a concept that I was recently introduced to was called a failure resume, where uh, pretty much you list a whole bunch of your failures, missteps, or mistakes and risks that you've taken, but you've learned a lesson through that. So, were there any failures, missteps, or mistakes that actually benefited you in the short term or long term? That help towards your career. I've been speaking too much, though. I've been speaking too much, but I got one. I mean, Chris and I spoke about this, so just briefly. I mean, I I had some artists on my last album with Moss. Specifically, it's not them that I take issue with, but their verses. One was misogynistic, and one had like a homophobic slur in it. That's not what I stand for. And anybody that rocks with me probably wouldn't have written that verse, but they weren't my peoples. They were my producer's peoples. And, uh, and they end, the verses ended up on the album. And like, I, I significantly regret that. And you know, that Maya Angelou quote, we did then what we know to do then, and when we know better, we do better. Like, I know now that like, unless someone is someone I would hang out with and go to the movies with and like, go to a coffee shop with and like, you know, basically do life with, I don't really want them on my record. You know what I mean? What would you say, just building on that in terms of um, how how that changes your does it affect your desire to record? Does it, it does it no. affect your desire to collaborate? No, 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 not at all. It was just um, no, none of that. It just it, it allows me to be a lot more either strategic or like I love this concept of um, curating. You know, I want to curate my records and each song to have a spiritual purpose and identity and also to facilitate feelings in people. And I'll just be a little more, I'll curate more next time. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah then that's transferable to the room. Um, failure resume? Jeez. That's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> um, why, why, why are you wincing up? <laughs> um, for me, I'm at a point in my career, I guess because I'm hitting a milestone year, I'm being forced to kind of look back and see what I did, what I could have done differently, and that sort of thing. Um, 
for me, I've always been heavily involved in the community, sometimes too much. <laughs> um, but to a certain degree, I felt that it was my responsibility as a woman, as somebody who loves hip-hop, um, coming from the family that I come from and the legacy that I have and the legacy that I might want to leave, that's a responsibility. So I got to put all the women of hip-hop on my back and we got to do it all together and I got to break doors down. But at the same time that I'm investing that much in other people, some of whom don't appreciate it, like my own passion is sometimes suffering. My own health is suffering. So I've really made a point of taking care of, starting to take care of myself. I flop sometimes. So that's definitely on my failure resume. But um, in addition to doing that, one thing that I made a conscious decision of doing is, as a mother, I turned down a lot of opportunities to be there for my kids. Mm -hmm. Um, some amazing opportunities. And the thing with opportunity, it doesn't always knock twice. Um, but that being said, I'm a firm believer that everything happens the way that it's supposed to happen. So even though, you know, I turned down opportunities in order to be with my kids who are now a lot older, I have that time with them and they have those memories with me and nobody can take that back as opposed to you know, flying off to Miami to do a party and missing something at home. So that's not really a failure, I guess, per se, but um, I'm getting to the point where I'm okay with putting myself first. And Eternia has known me for a while, so she knows, she knows how I roll, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it's a maturity thing too, so yeah. That was a good question. Wow, failure resume, um, geez, right? Uh, cover letter and everything. Um, uh, you know what, for me, I would say, not necessarily a failure, I would say, but um, sort of not recognizing the fear of, of putting yourself out there or doing something, right? Or, or masking that fear in some other activity, right? Um, a lot of times, you know, I might want to do something, for example, this art thing, right? But the fear of the unknown is just so strong sometimes that I found myself finding some other thing to do that was like a small little success, but it was never really anything substantial. And, I, and it was still didn't fulfill that true void, right? So I think that now, even like today, this step, like coming out here and having this conversation is something where... I overcame a fear in a way, right? Like, um, and stepping out. So, and sometimes it's just saying yes when you want to say no. So, um, yeah, that 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 was part of one of my I would put on my failure resume. Uh, my uh, I would call a learning experience is, um, you know, because uh, hip hop is something that I love. You know, going to a concert is technically work for me, but I also love it. So like it can be blurred uh, when I can like literally I get, I can get, I can go to whatever show I want to on a media pass. Uh, so I, since I started my grind like when I in university at like age 20, right? Uh, you know, when you're 20, you definitely have so many more, like you can just do one thing 
right? I can commit myself to the come up show and that's it. But now as I'm getting older, I have real commitment in my life uh, and attachments. Uh, I have to, the, what I learned is like, uh, I can't be doing the come up show all day, every day or all the time. I have, I have people that I need to, uh, to make time and space for. It's really important uh, because uh, I think the, my, my mind state was, uh, I'll spend time with you when I get successful. Then I'll be more value to you or like when I'm on, trust me, it'll be better to hang out. Like that's where I was, I was, I was like, that's where I was coming from. It was like, yeah, I don't know if you guys can understand. It's like, right? It's like sometimes because in those moments, if I, if I was spending time, because my mind would always be on hustle, like always like, oh, what can I do? What can I do better? Or like, oh, I like, I'm like literally like, like a fiend for success. <laughs> Right, um, so I think that's really important because um, this is a marathon. Whatever that thing is, it's a marathon. It is a marathon, and there isn't really a rush like that. And it's uh, important the ones that are the real ones, your loved ones, to spend time. And uh, uh, because if that passion, that love, whether it's not working out for you or whatever, you're gonna need those people <laughs> during those downtimes. So it's being uh, like a little more selfless, not selfish, selfless, right? Uh, I think that's what I learned uh, with, because the hustle never stops, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah, just thinking of what you said, um, I was doing an interview with one of the Canadian hockey legends from the women's team, um, Vicky Sonohara, and so she, was ta she has these th three gold medals, so I was like, do you ever, like, you know how Drake wears all his chains in his house sometimes? Do you ever do that at home? Like, where's where all your medals at home? She said, no, she doesn't. She only does that in public. Um, <laughs> but the interesting thing is, like, okay, we watch instant replays of when, you know, goals that were scored and all these moments. I'm like, what are the instant replays in your own mind when you're thinking back? And she was like, her most defining story was, 1997, before the 98 gold medal, they had to play in Norway in the winter, which is like dark all the time. So you don't know when it's day, when it's night. And um, after a game, they would sleep all day. They would just feel like they needed a nap. And these naps would be like 10 hour naps and they'd be up in the middle of the night. But it was those times during the middle of the night that were like the, the memories that, she's happy they won those medals. but. That's what she goes to. That's what they talk about when they hang out. That's like what replays in her head is like just being there, like on the verge in the middle of the night, not knowing what time of day it is and, and not knowing why you're awake. And I mean, it's to your point, it's like you think, oh yeah, when I get courtside tickets, you know, that's when we can hang out instead of going to my mom's house and watching, you know, um, on her TV. But it's like those memories at your friend's mom's house watching the game, you know. Though, of course, that would be fun too. Um, yeah, that's a great question. And I think that like, what I, one thing I wanted to share on that is, you know, there was a moment where I went through a really, really, one of the more challenging moments in my life. And this guy who's like super accomplished, like, you know, Harvard alumni and owns multiple businesses. And I didn't even know him that well. We ended up in a conversation and he's like, in this moment when it's fresh, he's like, write down what you've learned from it. He's like, put it away. No one else has to see it. But you know, to that point of a failure resume, it's like in that moment, it's not going to be val valuable if you haven't reflected, if you haven't put it down. 
And so many times now since then, where I've gone through things that were like disappointments or whatever, it's like right down, right away, like what did I learn from this, you know? Um, you turn that into wisdom. Uh, do you have other questions? Anybody want to share your moment from the year, a moment in art, hip-hop art that shifted how you see things? Anybody out there? Or a question? Yes. Uh, one of the, my name's Megan, by the way. Uh, one of the greatest things about hip hop is that it's like this cultural accountability mechanism and it can call bullshit on people and power structures. And it's a real phenomenal force of education and inspiration. And I was just wondering for 2018, who would you like to call bullshit on or what, <laughs> or what, or, or what is your, you know, top five bullshit call? Uh, like for me, it was, it was public enemy. And I grew up in a part of the country where I had absolutely no wherewithal or access to information about black history. And, and it was an incredible paradigm shift and the ability to like see the anger, the, the justified anger of an artist. So I just, I wanted to put that out there and, and who is inspiring you now or, or what's, what would you like to, to do or where would you like to, to speak truth to power? Mm. Mel's ready. Um, it's funny that you mentioned Public Enemy. Um, just when, when Toon was talking about, you know, how angry Donald Trump is making him feel and that sort of thing, the reason that there was a public enemy is because at that time there was so much going on in the States with, you know, after the crack epidemic and Reaganomics and uh, the senior Bush was in office and, and that kind of thing. And that's what rallied uh, MCs to, to use their platform for you know, social change. They didn't realize it was gonna be as big a snowball as it ended up being where they were on, you know, Dolores C. Tucker's list of, of uh, CDs to burn and that kind of thing. But I, I'd like to call bullshit on artists who have that platform and don't use it. Um, it's it's kind of disappointing to me, but they'll speak amongst themselves, themselves, or they'll put up a tweet or they'll retweet something, but they have the power of music, which goes so much further. Um, I think a lot of the time, too, not just young people coming up, but older people, we don't listen to the lyrics right away. Sometimes you need that dope production to get people sucked in, and then you listen to the to the lyrics, and you're like, yo... They're saying some, some real truth there. Um, that's what I would like to see, and that goes back to what we were talking earlier um, in regards to having that balance in hip-hop. We do want to party. We do want to turn up and have a good time, but at the same time, use your voice and your platform to educate, and I challenge myself with that too. Um, the type of people that I bring in on my show or that I want to engage with aren't just artists. There are, sometimes there are artists who are active in the community. Um, I use my platform to talk about mental illness because as a community, we don't talk about that at all. And it's so prevalent in the community. Um, and, it, and it's something that affects everybody, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of your economics. Um, so that's definitely something that I want to see this year. 
a very good question. At first I was thinking about lyrics and hip hop, but then I realized like we all grow and expand. As creatives, sometimes we need to put down one tool that we use for another. So for me, I've been um, really conceptualizing some podcasts in different forms, like it could be video or audio, um, have pretty clear ideas on each of them. And and for me, what I'm inspired by, I'm inspired by human stories and I'm inspired by the human heart and I'm inspired by bridging gaps. So um, getting different narratives in the same space, in the same room, like what you're doing. Um, and for me, bridging the gaps can be anything. It can be youth with like complete like people over 90, you know? It can be black, white, it can be gay, straight, it can be rich, you know, poor, it can be anything in between, but if I can just, and without um, clearly saying it, um, bring about the message that we are them, whoever they are. So I really love the idea of the person that you vilify, that you basically think is evil, there's some of that person in you, and there's a part of that human that makes us connected. And so I, I'm not, you know, so for me, it's like I would really like to um, to connect us a little more with the podcast work that I'm going to be doing. That's yeah. and that's so hard to see. It's, I feel like it's harder than ever to see that. You know, yeah, because it's like, it's like the these. It's like really, you're telling me I got some Donald Trump in me? Like you Nobody know? Wants to, yeah, really, that's what so, you're saying. So, that's where my mind goes, right? But yeah, then it's yeah, like, yeah. and you want to say like he's got some me in him, like. And maybe but, you don't have some Donald Trump in you. But maybe the people that voted for Trump, there might be like something like, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, yeah. there's like I. But is that polarization that's happening right. that that even if you go to, okay, this is an extreme character. But yeah, people who support um, him and then people who are, say, in that space who are like very comfortable with him or in our context, like, you know, Kelly Leach as a you know conservative candidate was um, came up with this idea of let's screen immigrants for Canadian values. And and that really being rhetoric to say we're going to set up questions that if you're a Muslim and you're answering it honestly, then you're not going to get in the country. And, you know, it's like, it's looking at the fact that there are people who, it's very easy to say there's nothing in common, you know, and people who support her will look at, say, like, Black Lives Matter and think, oh, no, they just hate white people. And these are, like, stances and positions and platforms, and when I think of similarities with people, I think about the things that drive us. So whether that be fear, love, you know, hate, insecurity, like the human heart stuff. Like, so where everyone goes with their platforms are driven by these same core feelings that we all experience, but we just go in different ways, you know? So I'd like to cut to the heart yeah. of the matter, literally the heart, you know? Right, right. Um, anyone else want, what inspiring you? What, what are you calling bullshit on? Call bullshit on, bullshit on Donald Trump, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to sit there and watch kids' movies with my kids, and Donald Trump pops up in Little Rascals, like real talk. <laughs> Try to watch Home Alone with my kid. Donald Trump pops up in Home Alone, so I want to call it bullshit and being kids' movies. <laughs> um, I want call bullshit on fake media, on on all the news outlets for not reporting on real stories, not reporting on Libya, like. Not talking about it, just talking about the same thing over and over again. That's why I can't watch that crap anymore. Um, big up DIY uh, reporting, like people that go out in the field and do this. Um, I don't know if anybody's seen, Sha uh, not Sean Kemp, I always do that. Ro uh, Kemp, what's his, Ross Kemp? He's a documentarian and he's, he's a D DIY type of guy. And he did a really good documentary on, on, on the situation in Libya. I think everyone should check that out. Like it's... Um, very raw, very stark, and it will. If you walk away from that, and you don't feel um, any compassion or, or motivated to do something. 
um, yeah, check yourself. And um, and again, like the po- like podcasting, like there's a lot of good podcasts out there. Again, circumventing these, you know, these outlets that you you for years you thought were giving you the truth. Um, and again, they're just they're feeding us bullshit. Like right. And thank God for real hip hop. Like that again, like the griot said, that gave us the truth. The truth, right? Um, again, like pu- public enemies and the Talib Kwalis and the most defs. Um, and like, yo, we need that JLEC album. <laughs> uh, I'd say pay attention to what social media is championing and also going down on. And I, you know, I people can have reactions about this, but it's uh, Twitter loves to make fun of J Cole. <laughs> <laughs> And when you listen to J. Cole's music, what is he talking about? Why are they, why, why is J. Cole, like, people going, it's fun to bang wang getting hate on J. Cole. Like, how has he become a punchline on Twitter? Exactly. And if it's that artist who is the opposite, whatever, say Kodak Black, or just throwing names out there, right? Oh, we're, with he, we're, we're pushing, we're going behind this guy right here, right? And uh, yeah, what does it mean? Like I, I, I keep asking this question and some guy's like, J. Cole is an average niggas rapper, is what he said to me in terms of what he means by that is because he talks about things that everyday people can re- uh, relate to, that makes him whack. It's crazy. Right? So those are just some of the things that I'm paying attention to because J. Cole has a song called Love Yours. It's about how you know, he wanted the Rolexes and everything, but he got it, and he's like, this is not it. Mm-hmm. And people are making fun of that. Meanwhile, the guy with the Phantom Rolls Royce is the best. Right. So it's, it's what's... <laughs> it I'm, is, yeah. That's why. I'm not the hugest fan. I'm not a J. Cole whatever, but I'm like, why? Why is this happening? Why? I, I continue to ask questions like that. And, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I, th- I think it also comes back... To, what's if, interesting? If, if, there's probably some J. Cole haters right here, so... so yeah, Boo. but overall, he's not a whack. He's not, he's not, he's not like that as whack as Twitter likes to hate. Let's go. No. Let's get. Let's. let's, let's no, but you know what? what? <laughs> there's a guy. There's a guy over there. I want. I'm. I'm. I'm asking this question all the time. So you. So you definitely um, baited that. Hi. It's yeah. interesting that you brought it up with the perspective of J. Cole, but yes. uh, <laughs> it isn't just. It's like um, there's this theory that. Uh, there's sort of like a culture of anti-intellectualism where um, anytime anyone tries to bring up real things, they're like immediately dismissed. Or even if you think of like TV shows, the smart guy is also always the guy that's like a nerd and doesn't get girls. And if you can't get girls, then you have no um, worth, right? Like Friends where Ross is the smart guy. He uh, went to university, got a degree, has a good job, works at like um, a museum or something. Joey, the uh, Joey. And Joey, yeah. who is um, the idiot, he gets all the girls and like um not saying like that's like a, an actual value where like getting girls is like should be um the only thing that you're worth but uh obviously like culture thinks like that where um a guy being able to get girls you're seen as like a, a better guy than a guy that can't get girls so they made ross the smart guy the guy that can't get girls and is like unlucky and they made uh Joey, the guy that can get laid, even though he doesn't have a job, he doesn't, he's like an idiot, you can't even have a conversation with him. 
Um, so like with J. Cole, the exact same thing, where like J. Cole started off as like the, the come up rapper and like all of his fucking mixtape covers had him in like basketball things and that was kind of weird, but like he was totally like in the culture and then like as he's been stepping away from the culture, trying to be more conscious, trying to actually analyze like life and the meaning of all of this shit, uh, people started ridiculing him more. And then he went for Kanye and, and now everyone just completely dismissed him. Well, it's, it, but it's interesting when you say too, because it's like you look at that substance and the fact that it's not as digestible in like in the pop world. But what's crazy is like if you there's this moment in um, the autobiography of Malcolm X where he talks about as there's I forget the guy's name that he, when he was red he hustled this guy on numbers. So someone who's running the gambling and he said that he got the right numbers and got the money and the guy knew he didn't, but he's like, that's your word, okay. And there's this real moment where his life is in danger because he's, he's done this um, and, and taken advantage of this guy who runs his gambling ring. But what was crazy is there's this full circle moment later on where that same guy who was running the gambling ring who's like so vulnerable, he kind of lost his mental capacity and now as you know, as a minister, Malcolm X is going to speak with them and sit with them and seeing like the, the change in perspective. And I think that you look at it like a lot of artists that where they were saying it was all about the watch and all that, because it's like they're, they're just getting that watch. So it is all about that watch in that moment. Um, but you're, you don't ever hear from them 10 years later or 20 years later where they're like, yeah, I said that, but you know, I didn't, I don't feel that way now. Life has shown me that it is more than this thing, but to have an artist who's right here right now saying that all this stuff that pushes us, our consumerism, is not everything, you know? It's like, yeah. It's interesting, I like, um, I feel that way about uh, Jay-Z's like 444, right? Mm -hmm. so I, and I feel like it just takes someone like Jay-Z to like make this huge paradigm shift, right? Where this guy's been rapping about this one thing in his, ent his entire career, uh, you know, what, what, whether it be drugs or, you know, a, a crime. And um, coming to this realization in his, in his older years and as a father mm -hmm. and seeing and teaching others and realizing that you need financial freedom and, and, and prosperity and think about that later on. I thought that was huge, right? Yeah. And, um, and I don't, I don't hear the same, like there was a little chatter about it, like saying, oh, this is boring and stuff like that. <laughs> I guess there was a lot of chatter. But um, I see the reverberations from that too. I think I think there was a, a some financial advisor who he made a book about 444 and took the the key notes that Jay Z was talking about and actually put it into substantive form and like how you can go about being financially free. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so I feel like it takes someone like maybe Jay Z or someone huge to make that shift. But I thought I thought that was a great moment in hip hop. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, he did do that, and I think that's a, that's an amazing example. I remember being like in first year university, someone bringing um, like, you know, a Jay Z verse and analyzing it, and just talking, you know, just completely writing him off as a human because he's like, you know, I love him, leave him, I don't have and feed him, you know, like whatever, like, and then to go to see somebody go through that arc. But what's crazy, which is a challenge, is that. Well, he's old. He gets written out. Oh, he's old. He's out of touch and stuff like that. But he's, you know, so it's it's that it's a it's a difficult challenge to get that authenticity and realness, emotional honesty in this like pop format that's really about like sell, sell, sell. Because nothing sells anything on the planet Earth like hip hop does. Um, we we have time for one more question. 
Does anybody? Yeah, so I think we, uh, we talked introduce, about it. Introduce, introduce. Oh, so my name is Sheldon, and um, I'm Brian uh, Toon Cruise. So, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, there we go. Okay, so, so my name is Sheldon. I'm uh, Toon Cruise, Randy's family, brother-in-law. And uh, so I think we, we brought up a pretty timely and important uh, topic with women and, and hip-hop. And it seems like every day I'm reading a new story about another sexual harassment case. Even today, leader of the PC parties had to resign because of this. So, and, it, and big ups to, um, you know, the story about, uh, you know, making sure that, you know, your female guests, um, you know, or have a ride home or, or you know, you start to think, think about being more protective. Um, so, I mean, for hip hop, for me, sometimes I feel conflicted because we talked about, you know, there's a lot of misogyny in hip hop. Um, but I guess, so my question is, what role do you think um, hip-hop should play in, in the Me Too movement and with all of these stories coming out? Uh, wow. So for me personally, just to rewind, the Me Too movement was awesome. It was exhilarating. It felt like some change was happening. It felt like people in positions of power were getting blown out of the water. Um, but another part of me felt like, I'm going to make an analogy. Do you guys remember, I think I used this example with you on the phone. In like the early 2000s, there was this cover story uh, in the Toronto Star in Toronto. And through the Freedom of Information Act, which basically means you can write, um, basically the journalist proved that racial profiling exists. <laughs> on the front page. See how you guys are reacting? You see how you guys are reacting? That's kind of how I felt when Me Too came out because a part of me was like, this is awesome that like, it's getting publicity, but then the other part of me was like, y'all are actually debating whether they're true stories. Y'all are actually shocked or surprised that this happens? Like really, is this really a conversation we're having? So I was grateful for the conversation, but at the same time I was like, like, like I don't know. So I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm not articulating myself well enough, but obviously um, I think in hip hop, at least the hip hop that I know and the woman that I know specifically that spit, um, Me Too movement has been happening way before hashtag Me Too um, in our music. Um, at the least the woman that I know. I, I don't know if you'd say the same. So, um, so it's awesome. It, I think it's great. I think the movement is great. I think the fact that it's on the news all the time, the fact that people are getting fired, like the fact that now people are gonna check twice, basically um, using their power over someone else. It's, it's all power relationships. So anytime anyone's in a position of power from big or small, they can, they can use it over someone else to put them in a really compromising situation and, and um, take something from them and traumatize them. So it's really awesome that this is now in the media. Um, but I think that hip hop will probably continue doing, hopefully, what it was doing already, which is exposing this stuff, like you said, you know, long before um, the rest of the world catches on. I think hip hop's kind of usually on the, on the, on the um, cutting edge or the curve of, of information before the rest of the world really takes notice. Um, further to what Eternia was saying, what I would like to see as far as hip hop is concerned is that the male voices join in the conversation. And I know right now it seems. <laughs> There's a lot of guys who want to support, but they're kind of afraid to support because um, they don't want fingers being pointed at them or they don't want to be shut down. But I think in order for there to be a real change, we have to have a conversation and everybody has to be involved. I don't think it's servicing or serving 
us well if only one side is talking, if only one group is talking. What I do like about what is happening now, as heartbreaking as it is, I think a lot of guys are realizing for the first time that the level of disrespect and eye pass women have to go through on a regular. This, this isn't stars who are on Hollywood, beautiful women that are on covers of magazines, like your sister is you know, at a club and her, somebody pinches her bamsi for no reason. Like That's an everyday thing, and it's a very real thing. It, and it, goes, it, it, it can escalate from comments to somebody getting in your physical space to somebody being violent towards you and you being in a position where you as a woman or as a man, being in a position where you actually have to fight to get out of that situation. And I think a lot of guys for the first time are realizing how pervasive this is. And there are a lot of good guys out there, but there's a lot of dicks out there too. And I think as far as the responsibility of hip hop, like I said, I'd like to hear the males be a part of the conversation. And if you see your boy grabbing a girl's butt in a club, like, call bullshit. Or even, like, the conversations, like, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, I, I basically came up mostly around dudes, like, more than girls. And so I know, I, I feel like I can, like, I know the conversations that dudes have when they're in a room with dudes. And, like, forget, like, even, like, that, which is physical contact, like, even just how women are spoken of um, in, a, in a crew full of dudes, even dudes that think they're egalitarian and don't do anything wrong to women, it's, it's not okay. Like, and, and, and I agree, like, preaching to the choir is us, is women talking with women about it. It'd be really dope if men got involved. It's, to add on to that, I mean, I think one of the things, when you ask the question about, like, what's the role of hip-hop in the Me Too movement, and I think, you know, when I look at how, as a man, I've been socialized, like, where that came from, that didn't, for the most part, my most progressive ways of seeing the world and interacting in the world and interacting with women came from hip-hop. Like, the ed my education system, um, you know, family, uh, media, like, examples you see in the business world and all that kind of stuff, like, that was actually where the majority of, like, that destructive patriarchal mindset has come from. And it's, it's hip-hop has played the, the opposite effect. And I think the other thing, too, is that, like, you know, people have been talking about hip hop as being misogynistic, and it's an easy thing. Oh, it's your bitches, hoes, da 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 da, and it's you know, um, e e an easy target. But like this gymnastics coach, the leader of the progressive conservative party, um, Hollywood producers, U.S. president. Um, you're like, you're you're looking at. No one was like, oh man, these these. Olympic coaches are just so misogynistic and sexual. <laughs> These movie executives are, you know what I mean? Like no one, that there's not been, even though it's like decades deep of sexual violence and misogyny being carried out in most extreme form, like ahead of a theater company. No one's like, oh, these theater directors are yeah, so yeah. like, you know, um, such sexual predators and so misogynistic. Um, but then you start to look at it. There was someone who spoke recently about the way that theater says, like, you know, you got to blur your boundaries and you got to push outside of your comfort zone. And there are so many people, men in power, who utilize that 
to take sexual advantage of young women who are acting to say, no, it's about like breaking out your boundaries and be free and like get to know yourself and, you know, let me get your, to know you too. Um, <laughs> and it's like, that, that's for me, like I, I I'm just don't even want to, it, it really upsets me when I hear like, people directing and saying, well, it's hip-hop's role. Not to say your question, but like, where, where it starts to be like, oh, hip-hop's fault. When it's like, nah, like, the, these, these um, areas of art and practice that have never been any, under any scrutiny for their perpetuation of misogyny have, are so, it's so deeply embedded in, in them. And, and I think that's where it is. I think we have one more, yeah, one more question. Oh, yes. uh, I was just gonna say, like, I think, I think to your point, like, I think hip hop is like an easy target because, like, a lot of it, no, it's lyrical and it's also visual. Like, when you have the video component to it too, and like, um, when you see like, you know, um, the sexual sexualization of women in videos, like you have Damon Dash just disrespecting women with pouring champagne on, on a woman on the boat. Like, I remember that image. Like, I don't know why I was burned in my head. Yeah, or remember, remember the, yeah, or remember the, um, or uh, I think it was a nothing but a G thing, and it was like it was like a volleyball scene, and like a girl was just like trying to volley the ball, and like a guy came from behind her and like took off yeah, her yeah, yeah. her top, and it, like that was normalized. You were just like, yo, you see that video, like, and you're just like, yeah, exactly, yo, it was nothing but a G thing, like, right? So it's just like a lot of the imagery too is just like uh, it. Um, it's got to change, man, because it hasn't changed much either, too, right? Like, uh, but what's crazy is no one talks about who's the casting director, who was the video producer, who was the you know the A and R and the label exec who actually were the ones who arranged. Because people think like, oh, what the rapper just calls up all the girls in his phone and says, "Come to the video shoot." No, the rapper shows up at this shoot and a whole bunch of people who are never under any scrutiny, who did the casting and who went through these books and who you know who are recruiting and and all that kind of stuff and and who are saying no, like we, the the song that we're gonna do is gonna have this look to it and you have to have your video girls in it, like. The, it's easy to point out to Dr. Dre, but there's there's a whole bunch of old white men who were a part of actually setting up that video for that moment to happen, who looked over the script and the vision for the the, the video and said, this is how we're gonna do this. And further to what you're saying, I think that just has to do with um, who's at the table making those decisions. Um, I know we all heard about the H&M kid with the sweatshirt and all of that. And to me, there aren't enough people who have the power to say something in order to change that. How many levels, how many eyeballs saw that before it was even put online? Right. Like we'll take the kid's yeah. parents out of, out of the equation for now. Yeah. But there are so many levels of marketing and you know, styling and all of that. Yeah. And they all saw this and nobody thought to say something. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know? there's people in this room who've worked with large brands who will tell you that, like, for the littlest thing, like, which type of orange are you using? Like, yeah. what's the angle of the line? Like, literally, down to that level, if the angle of the line is too sharp, that can't go out the door. If the color contrast is, no, like, you can't use that type of fuchsia. Like, um, so you're right. Like, it goes through a lot of hands, and... And people were okay with that. So we have one last question to before we close. I didn't have a question. I just oh. wanted to piggyback off that. But um, yeah. I don't think hip-hop will 
directly address the situation, but I think they're becoming more aware of the situation. And I say that because I don't think, I think the internet is very unforgiving and they're so quick to call out a contradiction. So if mm -hmm. a person were to address something, the internet would dig up something so quick to be like, yeah, yeah. look at this, look, you talk about money cash hoes. Wait, but I think now we're entering a state where these rappers are now getting older, they're getting married, they're having kids, they're having little girls, and they're becoming aware that, oh shit, maybe when I was 20 I was wilding. Like, like, and I, and, uh, and I think until maybe an artist like on the level of like a Nicki Minaj would address it, which I highly doubt she would ever would. But like, if uh, take someone like that, I, I could see someone more like Rhapsody addressing it. But like, I think hip hop is becoming more aware. I don't think they'll have the guts to openly speak about it because I think the the internet is so unforgiving. But I think we're at a state where we're becoming more conscious and moving forward. We're gonna be trying to prevent mistakes like that. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. Yeah, I, th I think it goes back to your point about where everyone talking about um, who's running the show. I think once hip hop starts running the show themselves, like you have more sort of uh, hate using the word conscious, but conscious owners running labels or like people like like Pinot Butter Wolf, Stone, Stone's Throw, like putting out like just pure hip-hop content and just pure, like, just honesty. When you have people, like, you get rid of these old, whoever's running it right now and just pushing forward this agenda, then I think you'll see, like, a total shift, right? When guys start, stop signing deals and start making their own businesses and, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And that goes, one of the earlier convene talks was called Remaking Our Institutions. And it was that question of, like, CBC, AGO, TIFF, these are public institutions and how do we ensure that the people that are making decisions and they're like, if you look at the TIFF program, right? It's like amazing job of being the person that selects the films, but you open it up and see it and it's like, it's all middle-aged white faces that are selecting all of the films at one of the premier film festivals in the world. So how, how do we look at also building businesses, but also our institutions and, and ensuring the people who are making decisions in those institutions are people who are going to put um, in the forefront the things that we need to see here, the artists and the voices we need to hear from. Um, and then, no, I just wanted to close to say, first and foremost, if we can give some applause and um, thank you to this amazing panel. Um, I also wanted to, to say thank you to Offsite Concept Space. This is a coffee shop during the day. Usually there's um, clothing and that kind of works through and items that are like pop-up. So if you are making something, um, you know, unique items and stuff, that's a possibility of selling those things through this space and connecting with them. There's always art installations rotating through. So I'd invite you to check out this one and just keep an eye out on this space. Um, they're, they're amazing partners. I want to thank Alicia Roberts, who co-produced this talk behind the scenes. You hey. And then um, just the, the last thing I'll say is that supporting each other is not that hard. Like the E-Project, it's a podcast. Follow it. Ox God game, um, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing where you can set up like basically through a Bluetooth speaker. There's questions and you battle over tracks, um, and it's an it's ox god, a u like the ox chord, you know? Who's the god of the ox chord? <laughs> Find out. Um, 
you know, and then you you have like you know CE Clothier in the room, um, Shorik Productions Entertainment. Like, there's so many. Um, it's just so, like I get emotional about it because it's it's so simple. Like, subscribe, rate, show up to an event. If you can't buy the person's full painting, be like, do you have any prints? Like maybe a $20 print? Like, <laughs> you know, like little things. Or like, you know, you're not at the point where you can really do that. Like, how can I offer my skill to what you're doing? Like, let's, let's really build up each other, follow each other, support each other. It's, it's so simple. But if you make it a way of life of like, I'm creating, it says expectation. I'm creating. I want to create. How am I going to expect people to support what I'm making and what I'm creating if I'm not sharing and supporting what other people are creating? You know what I mean? Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find out more about Convene at watervision.com or on Instagram. That's W-A-T-R Vision. Convene is founded and produced by myself, Chris Penrose, through Watervision Creative. Production, editing, and sound design of this episode is all done by Martin Agnon. We are going to keep these conversations going, so we will connect again on the next episode.